The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. We're going to talk about, in Galatians here, uh, the fact that the gospel is a beneficial gospel. We talked about a deserted gospel, we talked about a perverted gospel, and then we talked about this this gospel-centeredness that uh, God was calling the church to. And then today we're going to see how that gospel is highly beneficial to us in the congregation and what it does and the health that it brings us through Paul's testimony here to the Galatian church. Fast-forwarding from chapter 1, Paul jumps ahead 14 years in this autobiographical story that he's giving He's writing his own story here as the Holy Spirit is giving him opportunity to do that. And and the Bible says here, 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem. So this is 14 years after uh, what had taken place in Paul's testimony. He's uh, fast-forwarding us there and he's talking about what had taken place. The Bible says that Paul is going with uh, a a message that he's received from God. The word there in uh, verse 2 is revelation. God has given him revelation. A revelation, he has disclosed to him the mystery of the church and that the gospel is now open to all people, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. This was a truth that the Jewish church has greatly struggled with and had not understood. Culturally, they didn't understand it. Religiously, they didn't understand it. Uh, theologically, they, they didn't understand it. It had not yet been shown or revealed to them. It'd be like, think about this. How much of the gospel would we understand if we just had the Old Testament. We would have an understanding of the foreshadowing of the things that were to come and the Messiah that would come. And then Jesus did come and they knew that and they understood that. But how many of us understand so much more because we have the New Testament, we have the New Covenant, we have the instruction of the epistles, we have all of this instruction that is at our fingertips and they're getting this in real time. So sometimes we look back and we say, why in the world did they have such struggles in understanding this? And think about Paul. Paul is going with uh, revelation, but he's also privately going, in verse 2, to them which are of reputation. These are the pillars of the church that he talks about, these other apostles who are leading the Jewish church at Jerusalem. And he's going with a little bit of fear, in a sense of how they're going to receive him and this message that he's bringing to them, and this message of correction, and this message of understanding and he's wondering how they're, he's, he's going to talk to them privately, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. He, he's looking not for necessarily them to approve his message, but he wants them to approve it. He's not necessarily looking for, because he, if you can remember in chapter 1, he says, if somebody comes preaching another gospel, including me or angels or any other apostles, he says, let them be accursed. He says, don't listen to what they have to say. Reject their message. So he's saying, no, the message I have, I'm confident that it's God's message. But he's a little bit fearful of coming together with these apostles who are leading the church now, who, who have been greater leaders of reputation than he has for this period of time, and God is going to bring him there to teach them. And that must be a humbling thing. And that must be a, a, something that he's, he's coming into with a little bit of fear. And so uh, it wasn't necessarily threatening his certainty about his message, but uh, his fruitfulness, his desire to see that message spread. And so Paul feared he was in danger of running his race in vain, verse 2. 
And he was afraid that his ministry would be stifled and relatively fruitless and the message would not be received that he had. So Paul's trip here is not for fear that the Jerusalem apostles didn't have the true gospel, but what he did fear was that the Jerusalem apostles might not be true to that gospel. So his fear was not that they did not have the gospel. His fear was that they would not be true to that gospel. And I think that that's the fear as pastors get up and share the message of the gospel with the church. It's not that I'm afraid that you don't know the gospel or haven't heard the gospel or don't understand what the gospel is. It's the fear that you might not be true to the gospel. It's the fear that you might not hold to that gospel. It's the fear that you might listen to or get caught up in other things other than the gospel and be distracted from what the unifying message of the gospel is to all of us as believers. John Stott, in his commentary, put it this way, it was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of the Gentiles, but could they approve of commitment to the Messiah without inclusion in Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world? and the church of Christ as the international family of God. Sometimes we can do that even in America. We can look at the gospel as being mostly just for us, or mostly impacted to us. And what will that do? That will keep us from thinking of ourselves as being who God is calling to go to the world, to preach the gospel. How many think we need more missionaries? You believe that? How many believe that there are places in this world that need churches? There are places that need uh, to hear the truth of the message of Christ. Well, if we believe that, should not we be looking among ourselves and saying, who of us is God stirring in His gift and His calling to send out to places that have not heard? I think sometimes we think of other places and other people. God will send missionaries, just not from here. God will call people, just not from us. I mean, we're here. We're going to stay together. I mean, have you ever opened your heart and mind and saying, God, what would you have me to do? What have you gifted me for? What is, uh, what is the calling that you have for my life? And so it's crucial here. Paul takes Titus along, verse number one. Titus is a, is a Greek. He's uh, a flesh and blood, uncircumcised Christian. So this is, uh, this is somebody who, who Paul is bringing along with him into Jerusalem. Imagine how he might think or how he might feel and how awkward he might uh, I feel going into this congregation of people who is, that is all Jewish, that is all observing the, the Jewish traditions. And Paul's false brothers, verse 4, who had infiltrated the ranks of the church, would have insisted that in order to be saved, Titus needed to trust Christ and live according to Jewish rituals, such as circumcision. So in Titus, Paul confronted the other apostles here with a concrete personal test of one person who was there with them, whether they would receive him, this man Titus. Now we know that they did because there's the book of Titus. And God used Titus in a great way to set in order the things in the church that were wanting. And the Jerusalem meeting could not be kind of an abstract discussion. Would they require Titus to be circumcised or not? And for us, that's kind of a strange thing to talk about at church. For them, that was a really uh, a prominent thing to talk about. It was a focus of their tradition. It was, it was a badge of whether or not someone was of the children of God or not. And so Titus, who's with him, 
was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Look at verse 3. And by God's grace, the Jerusalem apostles rose to the occasion, and they walked the walk instead of just talking the talk. They did not insist that Titus follow Judaism or become a Jew before having fellowship. And what does that remind us? Verse 6, God does not judge by external appearance. Externals are to do with our doing. Internals are to do with our being. Christianity is, is about who I am in Christ, not what I do for Christ. Christianity is about who I am in Christ, not what I do for Christ. And we easily get hung up on what we do for Christ. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we shouldn't do anything for Christ? That doesn't make any sense. If God has made me his child, then obviously what's going to become uh, my life is going to be living as his child. Living his, uh, I'm in living in submission to the Father because I'm a child of God. He's my Father. I'm not living disobediently to my Father. If I'm living disobediently to him, then, I'm, then he's not my Father. And so it's not externals that make us Christians, it's the internals uh, that give us identity in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Their acceptance here of Titus was proof that they had accepted Paul's ministry and these radical implications of the gospel that were being introduced to him through this revelation that God had given to Paul. And so what was the outcome? Well, I want to look at these benefits of the gospel and what it brings to the congregation. Because here we have a congregation of people at Galatia who are Jewish and are stuck in their traditions, who are stuck in their religious ways of doing things, and as a result are not receiving Gentiles into the congregation, or if they are receiving them, they're making them obey their ritualistic, their, their rituals and their traditions and their laws in order to be accepted in the fellowship. So what is the true gospel that Paul is saying to the church? What does it do for the congregation? Well, the first thing I want to say, it's beneficial because it frees us. It's beneficial because it frees us. If you look at the freedom that happens here in the congregation as a result of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, what it does is is it leads first, the kind of freedom that it brings first is, is cultural freedom. Cultural freedom. Moralistic religion tends to press its members to adopt very specific rules and regulations for their daily behaviors. Why? Because if your salvation depends upon obeying rules, then you want your rules to be very specific, very doable, um, and you want to make sure that they're very clear. You don't don't, uh, want love your neighbor as yourself uh, to be the rule because that's that's an impossibly high standard that has endless implications to it. So uh, you want something that's more specific, something that's more like don't go to this place, don't do these things. Everyone has these requirements. We're, uh, we're taking the rule that God gives and we're making these very specific cultural requirements on believers and we're saying they're not allowed to do these specific things because that's how we have to obey the law of God. That's how we have to be obedient to God or uh, pleasing to God. And so there were days that they would observe or not observe. The, uh, there were things they would eat or not eat. There was food that they, would, uh, that they would say was clean or unclean. And rules and regulations like this get into the area of daily cultural life. And so if the false teachers had their way in the church, an Italian or African could not become a Christian 
without becoming culturally Jewish. They would have to abandon their culture and become culturally what that church was in order for them to be accepted, in order for them to be brought into the fellowship. Now, we have a, a very uh, huge investment and connection and fellowship with uh, the churches in Africa, specifically Zambia. If you brought one of those pastors here, one of those Zambian pastors, they would culturally not be like us. But let me ask you a question. Would they be received in full fellowship if they were believers? Would they be received in full fellowship? Would their traditions have to be like ours? Would their music need to sound like ours? When we go to their church, they go to our church, our music sounds different than their music. Our ways of doing things is different than our ways. And by the way, one of the things that missionaries in America often do that is wrong is they go with American church and they try to make whatever culture they go to American church and teach them we have the most right way of doing things in church and so we want to teach you the American ways because that's the right. Now we don't say American ways, we say Bible ways because we think American way is Bible. We've made it that way because we've made it very culturally specific. We've said the way that we do things is the most right and so we need to change people's culture in order for them to be fully accepted. Now, I'm glad that that is not the spirit of the gospel because the gospel works everywhere in the world. No matter what people's cultures are, no matter what their ethnicity is, the gospel works there. It can be preached, it can be taught, and it can be understood in any cultural context fully. Now, are there multiple cultures in our country? We're a melting pot. Uh, if, if I go to Las Vegas, is that a different culture? What are you laughing at? Dr. Tice was here. He preached for us. He's pastored for 30 years in Las Vegas. I would guarantee you that he would say there would be cultural differences there than there are here. Would there be cultural differences on the West Coast? Yes. Or we would say on the East Coast, the worst coast, right? Because we're the best coast the East Coast, right? In New Jersey, are there different cultures? Are we a different culture than, I mean, can you tell someone is from New Jersey? Where we pump fists and not gas, right? We have a very specific way of doing things, don't we? Not just the way that we speak, but the way that we interact with one another. People come up from the South and they think we're rude. We go down there and we think they're fake. I mean, at least we tell people how we really feel. We don't say bless your heart as a criticism. We bless them in other ways. And we understand there are great cultural differences in places that we go. So all churches don't look the same. All localities don't look the same. And by the way, that's okay. Because in order for us to fellowship with another church, they don't have to be like us. They don't have to do things like us. Cultural differences are, are okay. It brings freedom to us, and, and freedom in ways that we should have freedom. Freedom not to judge people that do things differently than us. Freedom not to think that we're the most right all the time. Freedom to believe that there are times where God is going to change us in the way that we do things, in the culture and how we handle things. To be more like Him and to be less like the way that we want to do things. And God changes us. 
But we have a problem with that because that keeps us from a system of control that religion often desires, especially in religious leadership. Religious leadership often wants to control the nuances of people's daily cultural lives and says, I need to change and control everything that people do. And you know what it does for me as a spiritual leader? Is that I don't have to be highly concerned with how you celebrate Christmas. I don't. I don't have to be highly concerned with that if you celebrate Christmas. If you choose to celebrate or don't choose to celebrate, guess what? You're welcome. You don't have to celebrate Christmas to be welcome here. Uh, We're not trying to say that with decorating. We're not trying to say that with singing Christmas songs. But there are some Christians that just as a conviction, they don't have a tree in their house. Is that okay? Are we okay with that? God forbid. Those people are here. Let's chase them out. Grinches, right? But there's, there's people that do things differently in their homes. Is that okay? There's some people that may choose to partake or not partake in certain cultural things that the Bible doesn't expressly condemn. Now, where the Bible condemns something, guess what? We have to be obedient to the Bible. When the Bible we're not talking about sin. When the Bible says something is sin, we stay away from it. That's all of us. That's the entire body of Christ. But we like to be more specific than God. We like to take God's generalities and make them very specific to our culture. I'm not saying I'm against application. Application is good. You should allow the Holy Spirit of God to take the principles of Scripture and apply them to your daily lives and to your conscience as the Holy Spirit of God leads you. You should do that. You should be open to that. But the gospel leads to cultural freedom. The second freedom that I believe that the gospel gives us is emotional freedom. Emotional freedom. Think about anyone who believes that our relationship with God is based on keeping up with moral behavior is on an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity because they're always trying to please God, always trying to please God, always worried about whether I didn't please God, whether what I did here didn't, and we have less freedom than what we're meant to have emotionally because we're always stressed whether or not we did things the right way all the time. You ever see a child that's like that in their home? can never please his parents or her parents, that child has insecurities that that they were never meant to have. Because how many know that parents are not meant to send the message to their children that their performance is the basis of their acceptance, that their performance is the basis of their love. And so it's that kid that really thinks he needs to win every game on the soccer field or on on the football field or on the baseball field or whatever sport that he or she plays because they're looking to their parents. They want them to be proud of them. And sometimes unintentionally, as parents, we send the message to them that we're more proud of them, that they're more pleasing to us when they do good things, when they make accomplishments. I don't want to send a message to my kids that I only pay attention to them and I only love them when they do things that I want them to do. How many do not want, as a parent, do not want to send that message to your kids? But we can unintentionally send that message to them. And we can do that in the church, by the way. We can unintentionally send the message to people that they are accepted or fully loved or fully pleasing or on a certain level within the body of Christ on the basis of their performance. The truth is, is we should all love each other the way Jesus loves us. How many believe that? We should all love each other the way Jesus loves us. We should love all people 
the way Jesus loves them. So let's not just take it within the congregation. Let's go outside the congregation to strangers. Let's go outside the congregation to the unchurched. Let's go outside the congregation to people who do not know the gospel or people that are enemies, antagonists of the gospel. What did Jesus say? Love them. Love them. Why? Because I love them. And my love is in you. You can love people without accepting of all their behaviors. I don't have to accept people's behavior to love them. I love my children, but I don't always accept their behavior. I'm not always good with what they do. I'm not saying that everything you do is okay. How many know that that's the wrong message? That's the pendulum swing of the message. Anybody can do anything they want. Well, that's a bad message. How many ever want to do things you shouldn't do? How many have ever hurt people because you've done things you shouldn't do? Acceptance is not approval, and approval is not acceptance. It's not saying that I have to accept all behaviors from people to love them. I can love people without accepting their behavior, without saying that I'm good with everything that you do. Let me ask you a question. Would any of us give one another the blanketed statement that I'm okay with everything that you do and everything that you think? No. Why? Because we, we, we're messed up. We think things we shouldn't. How many ever correct your thoughts? I shouldn't think like that. How many ever correct your actions? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have treated them like that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't respond. I, I saw something, and I responded wrongly in my heart and mind, and I thought something I shouldn't thought. I shouldn't think like that. Our behaviors are often wrong. And thankfully, our behaviors are not the realm in which we are accepted by God. We are accepted by God on the basis of Christ's behavior alone. Jesus' behavior is the only behavior that God can fully accept because it is the only righteous behavior that has ever been lived out in this world. And so when, when we say that our behaviors are acceptance, then what we do is we make ourselves the standard instead of Christ. And how many know that that is another gospel? That is another gospel. So it leads to emotional freedom. It gets you off the treadmill of saying, I do to be pleasing to God, rather than saying, I just do because I love. I just do because I love. How many want to live out the Christian life just simply because you love God? I just love God. How could we not love him? How could we not love him on the basis of he's rescued us, he's redeemed us, he's transformed us, he's made all things new in our life, he's accepted us fully into his family. How could I not love him? That gives me a desire and a motive that's pure, that keeps me off that, 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 uh, that wheel, that hamster wheel, of just running and running and running and running myself ragged in the Christian life and doing it for the wrong reason. You know what love does? It keeps us running without running out. It keeps us running without burning out. You want to know how to burn out as a Christian? Do for reward. Do for acceptance. Do to be noticed by people. You'll burn out quickly. You won't last very long in the church. You won't very last very long in your Christian life. But you know how to last? How to run without running out? To run without getting weary? The Bible talks about that we can... We cannot be weary in our well-doing, that we can run and not be weary, that we can walk and not faint. If we are truly serving the Lord, our service to the Lord is out of a direct love for Him. How many, uh, when your relationship is not right with your spouse or with your children, your works for them wear you out? 
When your relationship is not right with your spouse or with your children, your works for them wear you out. But isn't it amazing when you just love them? It's just You can just keep loving them and loving them and loving them. And you say, I don't need to love them because of what they do or don't do. I just love them. I'm just going to keep loving them no matter what. I'm just going to keep loving. I'm going to be steadfast in my love. I'm going to be like the, even if they prodigal, I'm going to be like the father on the porch who always is there to lovingly receive and forgive and restore them. And that is the kind of love that God has for us. Thank God, because none of us would be in right standing here today with him or with each other without Christ. And now we're clothed in what kind of righteousness? His righteousness, not our righteousness. And so the gospel is beneficial because it gives us freedom, cultural freedom, emotional freedom. We, don't, we obey not in the fear of insecurity of hoping to earn our salvation, but we obey in the freedom and security of knowing we are already saved in Christ. We obey in the freedom of gratitude. We are free to be grateful and thankful for a God who saved us apart from our works, apart from what we do. So both the false teachers and Paul told Christians to obey the Ten Commandments. But Paul told them to obey for different reasons and motives. So is it clear that the gospel is different, even though the message may sound the same? Some people say obey the Ten Commandments, but they say it for the wrong reason. Paul said obey the Word of God, but why we obey, the motive for obeying God's law, is the grace Gratitude, motive of the gospel. We are not in slavery because of that. We are no longer fearful, enslaved to religion and tradition because of that. So the gospel provides freedom culturally and emotional. And by the way, this other gospel that was being preached at Galatia destroys both of them. The second benefit to this gospel is that it gives, it unifies us. So why is this gospel beneficial to us? It unifies us. So it's very easy in the age of fractured churches, denominational bickering, to miss the repeated emphasis that the New Testament places on Christian unity. So because there are so many, I would say, tribes and sub-tribes of Christianity, and some of them exist for very good reasons, and some of those are doctrinal, and other of them exist for very uh, selfish reasons, for man-made reasons. The smaller I can make my group, the more right I can be. The smaller I can make my group, the more right I can be. That's the church that has four and doesn't want no more. Are you with me? We, we got our group. We got everybody straightened out in our church. Now there's only four of us. but we got it all taken care of. Or the family that can't, cannot fellowship with the body, you know, the, the family that comes in, they want to dictate to the entire body that the, the body needs to do everything like their family because their family is the most right, the way their family does things. So we don't do everything in the church the way my family does things. You don't, we don't do everything in the church the way your family does things. As a matter of fact, there's some things that we do that we don't do here. There's some things that we don't do that we do here. And so it's not about who is here the most right. It's not about what we all want. Could you imagine having the denomination of public opinion? Are you with me? 
And that's where we're at today, where everybody just has an opinion the way everything should be done. Now, if you don't think you're one of those people, I guarantee you have an opinion. How many have an opinion? I do. We all have opinions on everything. How many know that sometimes we share our opinions when we shouldn't? Both in the public forum and in the congregation. Sometimes we share our opinions when we shouldn't. Now, if I was to ask this, just as a general test here, who is warm? Some of you would say, I am warm. Some of you are already telling me with your body language. You're trying to tell me because it's my job to control the temperature in the building. Right? Because isn't the pastor's job to make sure everything's done? And so you're just telling me, i got to tell the pastor. <laughs> the whole time while I'm preaching, you just can't, you can't help yourself. And some of you are sitting there. In agony. I want to put the two of you together. So that, you know, you can warm the other person. And the other person, but you probably wouldn't get along because you disagree. You understand where we're at? Now that is a, that's a very surface issue. But some people, they split churches over things like that. They split churches over instruments. They split churches over kinds of music. They, they, they split churches over carpet color or tiles. They split churches over whether you sit here or stand here or what. They split churches over stupid things. And it's like the church is here so that we can make sure that everybody makes me comfortable. I don't come to the worship part because I don't like the music. Your problem. I don't like the message or I'm just going to come to the worship. When are we going to eat? That's all I'm here for. How many can look at the Bible and just say, it's not about me? As we get older, we tend to get more selfish, don't we? More self-centered. It's almost like we go back to our childhood, and that's why the book of Hebrews talks about people in the church that should be teachers that have to go back and be retaught because they have left what the gospel should bring in their life, and that is joy and service. Is there anything that you can't do? Is there something that you're... Listen, all of us, we could take out the trash, we could sweep the floor, we could serve in the nursery, we could help with the kids. I'm not saying we're all gifted entirely the same way, but we all should have a willingness to do anything, to serve each other, to be humble, to be involved in any way we possibly can. That's our job. That's what God calls us to. That's the spirit that the church should have. And it's amazing. Listen, people will go from church to church to try to find that Christ-like spirit and not find it in many places because churches are so stuck up on themselves and not stuck on the gospel the way that we should. And so what does the gospel do? It brings us together. It doesn't mean that we all have the same opinion. It doesn't mean we all vote the same. It doesn't mean we all... uh, Saying that we will do all those things the same is saying, like, if I say today, who's your favorite football team? We're going to have a church split, probably in, like, five, six, seven different ways. My marriage would be over over this. I can't even talk to my wife while the Eagles game is on. I go and read in the corner, you know, and she watches, and I have to talk to her in commercials. 
I feel like it's supposed to be the other way around. You see what happens when we focus on things that we have freedom in and we make them highly more important than what they ought to be and then we come together and all we're doing, I, was, uh, I, I gave a ride to a rabbinical student in Lakewood and he was talking to me about, I asked him, I said, what is your favorite part of studying the law? He's here from Jerusalem to study the law. Young man. He said, I like the Sabbath laws. I love studying the Sabbath laws. And I said to him, I said, well, that's a lot of laws. I said, as a matter of fact, there's hundreds of them in the law, and then there's thousands of them that are unwritten. He goes, you got that right. I said, interesting. I said, what is the Sabbath about? Rest. I said, but all these laws have made it about us, unrest, our inability to keep the Sabbath in such a way that would bring glory to God. And, and less focus on one another and in, in, in our love for each other and more looking at each other to make sure that we're all angling the same way, that we're all dressing the same way, we're all acting the same, behaving the same way, nodding the same way. We're looking more for a club of yes people than we are actual people. And he was like, yeah, man, it just destroys the peace of it. And I said, yeah, because who's the Lord of the Sabbath? Isn't that what's supposed to be the focus? Who the Lord of the Sabbath? Isn't it interesting that sometimes we have so many things that we create around God that we can't see God? We actually put a stumbling block between us and God. He said, said, that's right. Now, I understand that he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but I pray that he receives Christ, that he knows Christ. I don't want him to think that because he's a Jew, I don't accept him, don't love him, can't talk to him. Or that because I'm a Gentile, he can't do the same for me. I hope that I can preach Christ to him. And that he can understand that the whole of what he's studying is supposed to point him to the Messiah, Jesus. But you know what? He just needs to hear the gospel. But not in an American way. Not in a Baptist way. In a Bible way. One that receives him on the basis of his tradition and culture. And doesn't say he has to be like me in order to see Jesus. Because if he does, that's problematic to us preaching the gospel. We're going through making people jump through hoops before they come to Jesus. We're putting stumbling blocks in front of them. That's exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You're now, you're making, you're putting burdens on people and keeping them from the truth, keeping them from the gospel. And sometimes we look at the Jews and say, oh yeah, they do. But sometimes we don't look at us and see how we do it. What gospel are you preaching to the family that you Uh, have at home. What gospel are you preaching? Listen, wives and husbands, if you make your spouse earn your love, you're preaching another gospel to them. Your love for them should not be on the basis of their performance, should not be on the basis of how they act or what they, your love for them should be consistent. It should be abiding. It should be Christ-like. Your respect for them should be the same. It should not be on the basis of their performance. But what happens is we allow behaviors to keep us from loving people. And then how can we love the culture that we live in? I mean, do we look out in the culture, do we see behaviors that we don't approve of? Yes. Does that mean we can't love? 
No. As a matter of fact, all the more that we need God's love to love because I can't love with my love. My love ends. God's love doesn't. And so I need his love to love others. We were talking, people are exhausting, right? Exhausting. Drain it out. I mean, just unless I have the love of Christ, I cannot love anymore. I'm limited in my ability, in my scope to love. And how does it unify us? Well, first, we can accept anyone and everyone who is in Christ Jesus, verse 4, regardless of their cultural and ethnic background. Titus is brought into this Jewish congregation, a Greek, uncircumcised Christian. And Paul says, will you accept him fully in your fellowship, or will you make him be a Jew in order for him to be fully accepted? That's kind of scary. This had not happened in church before. Now there's an outsider wandering in. I'm sure some people were saying, boy, where's this going to go? Our church is corrupted now. We're allowing people in that are not like us. We're allowing people in that don't do things the way that we do. What should we be saying, church? Welcome. Welcome home. Welcome home. This is a place where you're loved, where you're welcomed, where you're accepted. And what does that relationship do? When we love people, when we welcome them, when we accept them, what does that relationship do? It gives us the opportunity to speak truth into their life. You cannot speak truth to people you don't love. You can't. They're not going to receive it. How many have ever tried to argue someone into the kingdom of God? You can't. You're not going to sit across from someone and debate someone into the just on the focus of how you're different from that person, wrestling with that person, going back and forth with that person. You're never going to help that person. We can accept anyone and everyone who is in Christ Jesus, verse 4, regardless of their cultural and economic background. An American Christian has far more in common with a gospel believer who lives in a nomadic existence on the Mongolian plains than they do with a non-believer who lives on the street, drives a similar car, and whose children go to the same school as theirs. We have far more in common with someone ethnically different than us and culturally different than us than we do with people who live in the same place, who go to the same place, who have the same... See, see where sometimes we, we get our unity from? Places we shouldn't get our unity from. We get along with people that do things, like things, act in ways, just like us. That's how we accept people. We have far more in common with people all over the world that are in Jesus. And guess what? We are in unity with those people. But we're culturally different. We're ethnically different. Secondly, the kind of unity it brings us, it means that we recognize that we have different callings. Paul had a different calling than those other apostles that were there. God had called him primarily to the Gentiles. And you know what that did for these apostles? They understood, oh, God called him to the Gentiles, and God called me to this place, to these people, and recognizing that we have different callings helps us from judging each other's ministry on the basis of our own ministry instead of on the basis of God's calling. How many know we all have different callings? God, God has given you a focus. Some of you, there's some people in here that love children. Just, I mean, I'm not talking about you. Yeah, I know we all have to say we love children, but some of you are annoyed by children, I can see. As soon as a child makes noise, you're like, <laughs> children to be seen and not heard. 
Do you, do you know what a child is? Some of you just love children because God has given you a calling to that ministry. You know where you should serve? In the children's ministry. Some, some of you love teenagers. I don't know where you are. Maybe we don't have anybody. Some of you love teenagers, and you ought to serve in those places. Some of you love music. Now, if you can't hit a note, learn an instrument. But if you have a drawing to something, how many know that God has given us different gifts and different callings for a purpose of edifying the church, ministering the church? It's not a good place for you to serve if you don't love children. Now, if you don't love people, you're, you're having a problem in the church, period. You need God's love for people. But if we just love ourselves, we become the church at Corinth. Are you with me? If we just love ourselves, we become the church at Corinth. If we just love people like us, we become the church at Galatia. And if we're not careful, we won't heed the corrections that the apostle is giving to these churches because all of us present today have a little Galatia in us, a little Corinth in us. Hopefully some of us have a little Philippi in us. Where's the encouragers? The people who Paul had no correction for because they were just constantly given to the ministry of encouragement and love and giving and generosity. Every pastor wants the pastor at Philippi. Paul even said it dozens of times. I wish I could go back. I wish I could come back. I want to be there with you. I've been in these other churches I do not want to be at. But this is a church that's encouraging. Boy, some of us have that ministry. What what brings us together is that we understand that we have different callings, that we don't all have to serve in the same way to the same people. But what are some common ways in which we fail to preserve the message of the gospel today? Well, some churches and Christians have adapted the gospel to the modern world by removing the offensive elements of the gospel. And so what they have done is they've changed the gospel. You know what I cannot do? I cannot remove the offensive elements of the gospel because the gospel is offensive. It is. I don't have to relish in joy over offending people. And I think some people, instead of earnestly contending for the faith, they just have an earnestly contentious spirit. And we are to earnestly contend for the faith, but we're not supposed to be earnestly contentious in our spirit. I'm not looking for a fight. As a matter of fact, a lot of pastors, if they went to Timothy, they would find out they're disqualified because the qualifications of a pastor is that they're not looking for a fight. They're not always looking for an issue to fight with other believers about, to be divisive in the church about. That's what disqualifies us. We're not looking for a fight. We're looking to... Stand up for the truth of God's word and, and not change it and not adapt it in such a way that we lose it. How many of you can compromise the gospel message in such a way? Listen, I've heard guys get up and they preach the gospel. They preach heaven without hell. They preach forgiveness without sin. They preach love without holiness. Listen, that is in, an impossibility. And what it does is it removes the reason for which Jesus died in such a horrible death on the cross. The ugliness at crucifixion should remind us of how much God hates sin. It shows us the wrath of God being poured out on His only Son who is innocent to save us from our sins. That should show us 
the gravity of our sin. That should show us the holiness and justice of God. But it should equally show us the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. You don't have wondrous grace, amazing grace, without the tragedy of sin, the destruction of sin. You don't have the sweetness of heaven without the horribleness of hell. You, you, you don't understand that there's one justice is, is measured uh, and understood through love, that grace is understood through truth, that truth is understood through grace. And what was Jesus full of? He was, he was the, the, the Word that became flesh, and He was full of grace, and He was full of truth. Church, we need to be full of Jesus, and when we're full of Jesus, we're full of grace, and we're full of truth, because that's what Jesus was full of. Not just a truth teller, but a grace giver. Both. But here's a third and perhaps a surprisingly challenging point to our unity. If you notice in verse number 10, our concluding verse, we should continue to remember the poor. No matter what our difference is, we can all care for the needy. How many other people that are hurting all around us and they need the church? They need the church to stop fighting with the church and they need the church to get up off the pew and they need the church to get out and help those that are in need. Are you with me? We have got to do something about the needs that are around us. But if we can't even get the church to come to church, how can we do that? If the church won't even gather, and the reason why we come together, listen, it's like why a team huddles before a play. We come together, we hear the same message, and then we commit ourselves to go out and do our job on the field because everybody's job depends on the other job in order for the mission to be completed. This is the huddle. This is the fellowship. This is when we come together to hear the message so that we can break and go out and do our job. We all have a job. We're unified by the truth of the message of the gospel. But everybody's job matters. And what often happens within the context of church where there's a top-down or there's a works-based performance methodology within the church, people leave and they think, my job isn't as important as his job. Your job is just as much as important as my job is. Our job when it comes to the gospel is equal. God has given us all a commission. God has given us all the burden of carrying the good news of the gospel. How many know that you will meet someone this week that needs to hear the gospel? You will. You're going to see somebody. You're going to know somebody. I don't care if they're religious, uh, if they know about Jesus, if they are in a church somewhere. You're going to find somebody that needs to hear the gospel. Who is going to tell them? You can't, you can't say, well, maybe they'll visit my church sometime. Well, that's nice. Invite them to church. But don't stop in just inviting them. Share your testimony. Share Jesus with them. Share the good news of the gospel. And how much more are people open to hearing the news in a time where we're celebrating a holiday with Christ's name in it? Listen, people need to hear it. They need to hear the good news. And may they see it in our faces and see it in our actions. It's not just preached from our lips. It's preached from our life. 
If you preach something from your lips that your life doesn't live, your words will fall on deaf ears. It needs to be seen. We need to love each other, and we need to love the lost and love those around us. And there are people in need around us that churches should be able to get together and unite together to help. There are other churches in our community. You know, we can get together with other church congregations for the same purpose. We just did that, Samaritan's Purse. You know how many thousands of churches are involved in Operation Christmas Child? We just participated with thousands and thousands of other churches, and we put our boxes in among thousands of boxes to get the gospel in all the world and to help people that are in need. How many know that is a good thing? It's a good thing. That's something that we can all be a part of, and that's what God was telling them. Hey, no matter what the difference of your calling is, we can all serve together. The last point has to be a quick one because we're done, but the truth is the gospel is beneficial because it balances us all. It balances us. How many more balance in your life? You tend towards, like me, to extremes. Sometimes we get involved in something, you know, whatever your latest hobby is. How many know you're always all in in your latest hobby? How many have had like 10 hobbies like that? And so as a result, you can look in your garage or in your house and you have all the trinkets from those hobbies that you used to be involved in. We tend to be extremists in certain areas. We focus on certain extremes and things that we're attached to or involved in or or wanting to be a part of. And what happens is we limit our unity because we make those things requirements for fellowship. But the truth is that we need the balance of the gospel. And how the gospel balances us is that it, it tells us that we cannot depart from the gospel truth. We cannot depart from the gospel truth. So no matter how I... Everybody has a desire in their life or a need in their life for love and community, family, other people in their life. Some people resist that even though it is a need. Some men want to be alone, even though it's not good for them to be alone. And we have this need that we have for community. And so sometimes what happens is that churches drop truth for community. They drop truth for unity. They say, well, the truth of the gospel is keeping me from unifying with people not preaching it. Well, it's meant to be that way. There are some people that I cannot fellowship with in spiritual activity, in church activity. I cannot fellowship because they do not preach the gospel, the truth of the gospel. I cannot align myself with somebody who has another message that's telling people that hope and joy and love and peace come through means that eventually are going to cripple them. Because religion eventually cripples us. Religion, eventually, we come full circle, and what does religion do? Points us back to ourselves. And is that a savior? No. Is the world a savior? No. Is love a savior? No. Who's the savior? Jesus. I cannot back away from that message, even if sometimes people don't want to hear it. Jesus is the savior. And Jesus is the one that's going to give people peace. He is peace. He is the one that's going to give people love. He is love. He is the one that is going to bring salvation because he is salvation. And so we cannot depart from the gospel truth, even if sometimes we get in balance and want to connect with groups that don't preach the gospel. And then lastly, we cannot depart from gospel fellowship. We cannot depart from gospel fellowship. 
Fellowship with Christ is a sufficient basis for fellowship with one another. In other words, I can fellowship with anyone who fellowships with Christ. If Christ accepts somebody, I can accept them, even if my flesh doesn't want to accept them. If Christ accepts them, I can accept them. And so sometimes we get lost and we think that fellowship is about things that it's not. We should fellowship because we understand that we have fellowship one with another because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, has cleansed us from all of our sin. Have you been born again? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? I want to put it this way. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I'm not talking about do you have a religion that believes in Jesus? Do you go to church that talks about Jesus? Have you learned about Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus where you talk to him and he talks to you? And each day you're in a relationship of love and regard and concern for your Savior and how he wants to use you in this life. That's why Jesus came, to give you a united relationship with God that was not possible because you were eternally separated from God because of your sin. And Jesus, in eternity past, before the world began, purposed to set into motion the gift of God, which is eternal life through himself, the message of the gospel. It existed before we existed. It existed before we sinned. It existed before the world got corrupted. And it still exists today because God exists. And the gospel is Jesus. And Jesus is the gospel. If you know Jesus, you know the gospel. But again, my fear is not that you don't know it. My fear is whether you will hold to it. Sometimes we get sidetracked on things, our preferences, the way we do things, making people do things the way we do things, our traditions. Church, we have got to preach to this world that we live in a message that's pure in the gospel regarding truth, keeping to it, fellowship, making sure we are uh, looking at what the Bible says is the basis for fellowship, is the basis for truth, but then going out and preaching in love to everyone in the world the gospel message which will transform all of us. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.